Okay. Ezekiel 37, 1 through 10. Bible says, many of y'all are familiar with this passage. The hand of the Lord came upon me, brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. By the way, he's having a vision. He's having an experience. Okay. And he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. So it's kind of like he was saying, they weren't just dead, they were really dead. <laughs> and he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And so I said, oh Lord God, you know. And again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Reminds me of that song, them bones, them bones, them dry bones. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, I want you to recognize here, even though we're not touching on this, this is what the Lord says, but it wasn't until the man that was in agreement with God prophesied that it happened. There's something about coming to agreement with the Lord. And it's not that God can't do whatever he wants. He can do whatever he wants, but he has chosen to work through his creation, you and I. So it says, I, Ezekiel, prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. And the Lord, or he, said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now, by the way, this is all a vision that he's having, but God's going to explain the vision a little bit later in the following part of that passage. We'll get to that in a moment, okay? As a way of introduction, I was thinking about this coming year, because I hadn't seen you all since last year, and I was thinking about what was in store for us as a church during this, and how many of you know it has been an incredibly turbulent season of time. We've been experiencing uh, a lot of uh, storms politically, economically, socially, etc. And I asked the Lord, what's coming up this coming year? And when I asked them, the Lord very quickly, doesn't always do this, but very quickly whispered to me that it was to be a season of restoration. When I asked him what the biblical text would be that I could use, he actually gave me one, and it was this passage here from Ezekiel. So uh, I, I went to the passage. I uh, felt like the Lord gave me something. I got a little bit of an outline. And the first point that I want to look at is the hopeless despair of the people of God. And again, what I like to do, I read the text, but then I'll go back to it, uh, uh, you know, trying to, to uh, reinforce the point that I feel like it's bringing out. So the hopeless despair of the people of God. The hand of the Lord came upon me, brought me out in the spirit, sat down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass by them all, and behold, there were many, very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And so I said, Oh, Lord, you know. So the first thing we want to notice here is that God is aware of the condition of the people. God is not up in heaven without any idea of what's going on. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly where we're at. All you got to do is go to the first three chapters of Revelation, and he knows exactly what's happening in the churches, right? 
He's walking through the midst of the golden camels, the, the seven golden camels, candlesticks, which represent the seven churches of the people that he was about to, to write to. So God knows what's going on with the condition of his people. He's instigating a process of restoration as he brings Ezekiel into enlightenment of what is actually taking place with the people because Ezekiel wasn't seeing the bones. He was seeing the people. And God was saying, let me show you what's going on behind the scenes, spiritually, what's going on. And so he brings Ezekiel into the enlightenment of what the condition of the people are and into the place of cooperating with him because he wanted to do something about it. How he does uh, things here reminds me of when he asked the disciples before feeding the multitudes in John 6, the scripture says he already knew what he was going to do. The Passover, it says, the feast of the Jews, John 6, 4 through 6, was near. Jesus lifted up his eyes, seeing a great multitude coming toward him. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test them, for he already knew what he was going to do. So we can surmise that when God is calling to our attention to something, it's almost always because he wants to do something about it. That's what I was talking about with the word of knowledge. He doesn't just give you a word of knowledge to let you know that he knows things. He gives you a word of knowledge because he wants you to know that he wants to do something about it. And what that should do with us is it should cause our faith to rise. Right? So in our passage in Ezekiel, God is calling the prophet's attention to the dry bones because God wants to do something about the situation. Second, what we see in this text is that what God uh, is what God exactly was calling Ezekiel's attention to. He sets Ezekiel down in this middle of a valley, and what God reveals to us is that these bones that he was looking at represented the whole house of Israel, not the ones that are dead, but the ones that are alive. This, they, the, the bones were a representation of the people of God who had lost their hope and believed that they were cut off from God and from his promises. Like the dry bones, they believed themselves to be dead to the hopes and the promises of God. Now, some of y'all are, are, most of y'all are Christians. Some of y'all may not be. But even as Christians, we can get so used to crying out to the Lord and nothing happens that we almost consider ourselves dead to some of the promises of God. That's for somebody else. It's not for me. I've been praying forever. It's not going to happen. I'm not even going to try to get my hopes up anymore because it just doesn't happen. You would be one of the people that God is talking to in this situation. You may not be dead dead entirely spiritually, but you might be dead in your, in your way of thinking to what God would want to do in your life because you don't want to get your hopes up. I'm making sense to you. To these people who were dead, God is sending the prophet, in this particular instance, Ezekiel, to bring life back to the bones, to bring life, hope, and, and restoration back to these people that were in effect God's people. And so how does he do that? That brings me to my second point, the prophetic declaration of restoration. God said in Ezekiel 37, 4 through 10, to the prophet Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now remember, he's prophesying in a vision to the bones, but in reality, he's prophesying to the people of God. 
Thus saith the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath and tender unto you, and you shall live. And so we jump down to verse 7. It says, I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a noise, a suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered over them, but there was no breath. And he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Now I want you to know, sometimes you've got to prophesy more than once. How long do I prophesy? Until you see the work of God manifest. How long did Ezekiel pray? Well, he prayed seven times, so I shouldn't have to pray more than seven times. No, he prayed until he saw what God promised manifest. In his particular case, it was seven times. It might be seven times. It might be one time. It might be 70 times. Well, how long do I go? Until you see your little Isaac running around. I'll make it sense to you. So, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God. And again, I'm going to stop here and say, well, God can do whatever he wants. He can do whatever he wants, but he's chosen to do certain things, and he's chosen not to do it without you. I don't have to participate. I don't have to do, I don't have to do what you're saying. You don't have to do it, but nothing's going to happen. And then you're going to blame God, and you're going to get mad at the church, and you're going to get mad at people, and you're going to get mad at crazy manics. Ron Popeil selling another crazy manic on TV? No, no. You're going to get all reasons to get mad because you don't understand how God works. God works through people. God works through you and I. And he uses us to do his will. And if you don't come into cooperation with God, and I'm going to upend some of your theology, the will of God can be frustrated in your life. Not in general. Didn't what, didn't, what did he tell Esther? Yeah, Mordecai said, you need to go and do something about this. And she said, I, I, I can't do that. I, I won't do that. I, I, I'm not allowed to do that. And he said, well, if you don't do it, God will raise up somebody else to do it, but you won't experience it. Right? We've got to learn how to cooperate with God. If we want to see the will of God manifest, whether it be for salvation, healing, deliverance, whatever the case may be, we have to cooperate with God. And when God tells us to begin to prophesy, begin to declare, begin to, when you've got a situation in your body and God says, speak to the condition, don't, don't give the condition that you're dealing with, don't give it a home. Don't make it a bed in your house. I'm talking metaphorically. Don't say, hey, now I don't have to be alone anymore because diabetes is keeping me company. Oh, thank you, diabetes, for coming and visiting me. Nobody calls me, but diabetes is here with me all the time. He said, well, I don't do that. Yes, you do. When you embrace it, when you make room for it, I'm not telling you you shouldn't treat it. I'm not telling you you shouldn't do what the doctor tells you to do, but I'm saying you don't have to accept it. You don't have to embrace it because the Bible says speak to it. Why do you speak to it? Get out of here in the name of Jesus. You're not allowed in my body. I don't care what my genetics say. I don't care what the report says. I know what God says. God says by his stripes I am healed. So the next thing that we note in our passage is that in this vision he's having, Ezekiel is having, Ezekiel is commanded by God to prophesy to the bones that he is looking at. As Ezekiel begins to prophesy to the bones, we begin to see life coming into these bones. And what I want you to see here is that it's a, in this particular case, it's a two-part process. 
First, God's intervention takes place through a person, and crucial to that intervention is the declaration of the prophetic word of God. God doesn't tell Ezekiel, listen to this, God doesn't tell Ezekiel to get a degree in surgery and then go put those bones on a table like Frankenstein did and put the bones together and stick a lightning rod out. And you, he didn't do any of that. Uh, he didn't say go to school, get a degree in medicine, get a degree in residential in surgery, put the bones together according to the knowledge that you would acquire through study and acquisition of knowledge. No, instead he tells Ezekiel to prophesy. Well, that doesn't make sense to me. And it ain't about what makes sense to you. It's about doing what God says. Stepping out on the water doesn't make sense to me either, but Jesus said to Peter, come. If you, have you read the Old Testament? Going to battle with a choir in the front may not make sense to you, but it made perfect sense to the people that got a prophetic word from God. Right? The only time it would make sense to us if we hate our choir. But in actuality, the choir wasn't out in front because they didn't like the choir. The choir was out in front because they believed the word of the Lord. He said, you don't have to do anything in this. God's going to do it. And they said, we need to put feet to our faith. Let's put the choir out there and let's start singing and rejoicing. And the Lord did what he said he was going to do. It doesn't make sense to me to have to walk around the city once every day for six days. And on the seventh day, walk around on the seventh and you blow the, the trump, you blow the trumps horns and all of a sudden the walls that were not able to be penetrated by human might, by human power, all of a sudden by blowing a trumpet, they fall down. Does that make sense to you? No, there's a lot of things that God does. It doesn't make sense to me for God to tell Moses, get out in front of the people when you got no way to go left, no way to go right, no way to go backwards, and nobody to go forwards, lift up your staff. And if you'll lift up your staff, you're going to be able to go through on dry ground when he's facing the ocean. I don't make sense to me, but it makes perfectly sense, good sense in the kingdom of God. We're not called to do things that make sense to us. We're called to do things that God says to do. And they don't make sense to us, but they makes perfect sense to the Lord. Right? We're not to be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And the Bible says the foolishness of God is greater than man's wisdom. Second, and extremely important to what we'll see in the coming weeks is that Ezekiel doesn't see the fruition of all that God is going to do immediately. What we see in the vision is that Ezekiel is required to prophesy in stages. As he prophesies, something specific takes place, and then when he prophesies again, something else takes place until we see the completion of what God has planned to do. Now listen, I didn't think about this just right now, is that he's prophesying in the spirit to the bones. But we know the bones represent the people. I don't believe, even though something is happening in the spirit, I don't believe the people experienced anything. my personal opinion, until the process finished. So sometimes you not think you're accomplishing anything because what you see in the natural is the same. But what you may not realize is what's going on behind the scenes in the supernatural in the spiritual realm when you do what God tells you to do. You think nothing's happening because there's nothing taking place. But if you were to look behind the scenes and the veil was removed, you might see, hey, look at what's happening. The bones are coming together. This is taking place. I thought nothing was happening. That's right, because you can see into the spiritual realm, but God knows. 
So as he prophesies, something specific takes place, and then when he prophesies again, something else takes place. In the same way, we've got to realize that while God can do everything at once, most times God doesn't do everything at once. He initiates a process to bring his will to pass. Did you know that God's desire when you got saved was not that you'd be a convert, but that you would be a disciple? Did you know that discipleship is a process? God, didn't, God initiated discipleship, but he didn't complete the process in your life. It is an ongoing process in your life. Requires participation from us. What God wants for us is to be fruitful. But you don't get a seed planted and the next day it's producing fruit. It takes time. It's a process. There's growth that takes place for fruit, fruit to bear in your life. God works through a process. Now, I'm not saying that God can't pray one time and everything's done, and we want that when we pray for people that are sick, that are lame, that are going through conditions. I want to pray for them, and I want to believe God that, boom, right then, every, the whole process is done, right? But sometimes you, get, you pray one time, and you think nothing's happened, but something's happening, but you need another prophesy. You need another prayer. You need another declaration. I'm trying to go with the text, right? Yeah. How often do I got to do that until the process is complete? So again, going back to this vision, the restoration of the bones was a process. The restoration of the people was the culmination of the process. What these bones represented was the present condition of the people of God. They weren't just dry. They were desert dry. <laughs> so what we're seeing is a spiritual vision of what God is going to do spiritually within the people. The people are not literally dead, but they're spiritually dead. And God is going to bring the people back to life in him. Ezekiel 37, 12 through 13. Therefore prophesy and say them, to them, to the people, thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. Now the land of Israel is the land of promise. The people had been taken out of their promise into captivity. And in their captivity, God says, I'm going to raise you up again, and I'm going to bring you back into the land of promise. What God promised them may not be the same thing he's promised us, but what I'm saying to you, and what we're going to get to in a little bit more in a moment, is that the time has come for many of y'all who believe that the things that God wanted to, your to do in your life weren't going to happen because you find yourself in captivity, you find yourself a, a slave to age, to financial debt, to physical affliction. And God says, I'm going to prophesy into your life. I'm going to do something in your life. And I'm going to bring you back to that place where I promised you something. And you're going to see the fulfillment of what I promised you. Now, how that impacts us today is often we erroneously believe that restoration or what we know is revival because revival is a synonym for restoration. You see, you can't restore something that hasn't been stored. I know that doesn't make sense, uh, uh, you know, vocabulary-wise, but I want you to get the, the, the symbolism there. You have to have something stored before you can restore it. 
you can't have revival if you've never been vived. Or hear what I'm saying? You've got to be vived and then fall away and then get revived. You have to have been stored and then lost and then restored. But you can't have the second without having the first, right? So um, how that impacts us is that many of us erroneously believe that revival is an instantaneous thing. What we often don't fully recognize is that revival is an outbreak of God's spirit that often took a great deal of time to prepare for. In the wilderness, there was a lot of time and preparation that took place in the construction of the tabernacle and the preparation of the priests. After this lengthy and intricate process was complete, when they finally erected the tabernacle and placed the sacrifice on the altar, there appeared to be a sudden manifestation of the glory of God and the fire of God. Exodus 40, 33-35. Moses raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the screen of the court gate. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now what you don't see here is that this is Exodus chapter 40, but you don't see probably from Exodus chapter uh, 20 something or 30 something onward is all the preparation that preceded the manifestation of God's glory. There had to be the revelation of what the Israelites had to build. And then they made tent curtains. They, they made furniture. They made uh, 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 poles. They made uh, all the things that comprised. They made the vestments for the priests. And all that stuff had to be prepared. So it seems like the glory of God fell instantaneously. It did, but it was an instantaneous uh, uh, manifestation of God that took a long process to get there. Are you hearing what I'm saying? God set apart the people that he filled with knowledge to complete the detailed work that he gave to the people to do. Afterwards, Moses put it all together, and there was like, appeared to be an instantaneous manifestation of the glory of God that fell. Similarly, what we don't take the time to go through is all the chapters in Leviticus that preceded the fire of God falling in chapter 9. Leviticus 9, 22 through 24, Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. To recap what we've learned, there was a considerable amount of preparation that took place before what appears to be the sudden manifestation of the fire of God that consumed the sacrifices. You had to know what are the sacrifices, and God had to reveal them. How do you do the sacrifices? They had to get the, the animals to do the sacrifices, the priests. Uh, who, what priests can go in? How do the priests do it? How do the people come? What do they say? How do they do? All of this had to be put in place before they set the altar up, and when they brought the sacrifice there, it says, oh, the fire of God fell. And it was an instantaneous thing. But look at all the preparation that took place for the instantaneous manifestation of the glory of God. God's instantaneous work is almost always the culmination of a process. And that's what we see taking place in the vision that is Ezekiel is experiencing and interacting with. And that brings us to our third point, the outpouring of the Spirit of God. 
Ezekiel 37 and 10. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. The final thing we want to see in the restoration of God's people has to do with the work of the Spirit and the process of restoration. First, God calls Ezekiel's attention to what he is going to do. Second, Ezekiel prophesies the will of God. And thirdly, and ultimately, we see the Spirit of God moving to bring the restoration into manifestation in and through the people. Ezekiel 37 and 14, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land and you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. God's work from the very beginning of time, from the very time that he revealed to us by Moses, his word in Genesis is a work of the spirit. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Exodus 14, 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. Now what you don't realize when I read that scripture right there is the word translated as wind is also translated as spirit in another place. The same word in Hebrew is the word ruach. So we see that Moses, the prophet of God, lifted up the staff at the instruction of God, at the word of God, and as he obeyed the word of God, the spirit of God or the wind of God began to blow, and it was through the power of the spirit that the actual parting of the sea took place. All throughout the Word of God, we see the will of God being brought to completion by by the empowering presence of the Spirit of God as the Spirit of God moves in and upon and through the people of God. In Ezekiel 2, 1 through 2, the Lord said to Ezekiel, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. The problem is Ezekiel, when he saw the Lord, he he was like dead in the presence of God. He couldn't stand. I don't know if I should camp here or not, but I want you to know when the Spirit of God begins to move, you're probably going to have a lot of people out, and they're going to look like they're dead. But they're not. They've been touched by the power of God. And then you're going to have some other people that react differently to the power. I'd like to line up a few people here, and I'm I'm going to have you stick your hand in that socket right there. Some of you, this morning I woke up, and my hair's a little bit longer. My hair was like this. I thought, woo, I hadn't seen that in a while. My hair was like standing up. And I said, well, that's a new hairdo for the day, but I think I'm going to get it back to where it was. Some of y'all stuck your hand in the socket. Your hair would go like this. Some of you would fall down like you've been slain dead. Others of you would just sit there and, 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 and. What's happening? You're being touched by the power. But we don't react all the same way when we're touched by the power. And the thing is, some of you may get a touch of 110, and some of you may accidentally get a touch of, what's the other one, 270, 220. And if you look on the paper, it says 110, 277, so, eh. You don't know what you're getting, right? So Ezekiel was in the presence of the Lord, and he's as good as dead, and God says, stand on your feet. And Ezekiel, I can't move. Now, I know this isn't in there, but just listen to me. Hold on for a minute. I can't move. I can't do. I can't, I can't respond. There's nothing I can do. So here it says in verse 2, Then the Spirit entered in me when he spoke to me, and the Spirit set me on my feet. 
and I heard him speak to me. In Zechariah 4 and 6, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In the New Testament, the power of God was an empowerment of the Spirit of God coming upon God's people. Now listen, I've, I've said this before. I'll say it again. I may pay a price for it one day, but that's okay. I don't understand today how people that have been touched, saved, and empowered by the Spirit of God can abandon the moving of the Spirit of God to go backwards and live in a way where the Spirit of God is no longer necessary for you to live out your Christian life. Jesus thought it was so necessary, he told the disciples that had been with him for three years, do not leave Jerusalem until you've been empowered from on high. You need the empowerment of the Spirit of God in your life. You need the power that gives you boldness to witness, but you also need the empowerments and the enablements that come through being baptized by the Holy Spirit. You need to be able to prophesy, to speak in tongues, to translate the the, the messages that have been given. You need the gift of faith. You need the working of miracles. You need gifts of healings. You need tongues, interpretation of tongues. You need faith. You need word of knowledge. You need word of wisdom. You need these things in your life. Do not leave Jerusalem until you've been empowered from on high. Eh, I'll just live like a Baptist. Listen, I'm not opposed to Baptists. I love Baptists. I learned a lot from Baptists. I just don't understand how Pentecostals want to go back and live a life that's basically anti-spirit, anti-Pentecostal. I'm not talking about putting your head in a bun and wearing, I don't want to go back to that. I don't want to wear a skirt. Some of y'all that are new, uh, the people will apologize for you afterwards for my behavior. But listen, I don't want to go back and live that way either. I like that ladies put on makeup. (laughs) I like that you get your hair done and don't everybody wearing a bun. You know, that's how I can tell you apart sometimes. (laughs) I'm stepping in it now. I don't want to go back to those days. Right? But I don't want to go back to powerlessness either. I don't want to go back and live life in such a way that my life is no different than somebody who doesn't believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I don't want to live that way. And I, for the life of me, can't understand why people that have been saved and baptized with the Holy Spirit want to go back and do that as well. I don't understand it. Now, it doesn't mean I don't love you. And it doesn't mean I won't fellowship with you. And I'm not going to try to convict you. I'm not going to do any of that. But I don't understand. And yet we see over and over and over again people that have been saved and baptized with the Holy Spirit going to churches now. It's not because there's a lack of churches anywhere, but going to churches where they no longer emphasize or promote or even teach or even believe that there is a, the, the empowerment of the Spirit of God for your everyday life. I don't see any lightning bolts, so it may come later. Acts 10.38, Jesus didn't begin his ministry. He was 
quote-unquote, the way our terminology, saved from the moment he was born because he was always in contact with the Spirit of God. But he didn't begin his ministry until he received the power of the Spirit of God. The Bible says the Spirit of God came upon him, not in him, but came upon him. That's the difference between being saved and being baptized with the Holy Spirit. When you get saved, the Spirit of God comes in you. When you get baptized with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God comes upon you. And then when the Spirit of God came upon him, that's when he began to do the miraculous works of God. The works that I do, he said, greater works than these shall you do. Oh, that just means I'm going to reach a lot of people. Well, we want you to reach a lot of people. That's, that's, that, but that's not what it means. He said, the works that I do. What were those works? The power to proclaim so that people get saved, healed, delivered, and set free. Preach the kingdom. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse the lepers. Cast out devils. How are you going to do that with the empower, without the empowerment of the Spirit of God? How are we going to do that? Well, there's just a lot of mess when the Spirit of God. Absolutely. That's why he gives leadership. That's why he gives the Word of God. You don't throw out babies because they're messy. I didn't want a messy baby. Give me another baby. I don't want to have children anymore. They're too messy. No, you've got you to steward them. You've got you to teach them. You have to learn. But, you know, but they're beautiful, precious gifts if you'll do that. And it's the same with the gifts of the Spirit. They're beautiful, precious, empowering. We need them. But just because they're messy, right? I don't want to deal with the mess. That's really what we're saying. I don't want to deal with the mess. But I'm willing to deal with the mess. The leadership here is willing to deal with the mess because we know we need what people call mess. I call the empowerment of God to do the work of God. And I want our children to grow up. I want our children to grow up speaking in tongues, prophesying, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, laying hands on the sick and believing that God's going to heal and deliver people when they do. I want them to know that from the time that they're little. I want it to be part of the culture. And I'll be honest here, we believe in all that, but I can't really say that it's always been a part of our culture that the kids would do that. But I want it to be part of our culture. Kids don't get a junior Holy Spirit. You know, you know, kids, what do you want for Christmas? I want a car. So what we do is we buy them this little pedal car, you know, and they go out and say, I'm driving a car. <laughs> well, that's what we do in the natural realm, Right. But somehow we think that that's what happens in the spiritual realm. No, in the spiritual realm, you get the full-blown Holy Spirit. You get it all. And we want our kids to have that. We want them to have an expectation that this is normal. This is how it's supposed to work. This is how it's supposed to function. And I'll be honest with you, I wish I knew now what I did when I first became a parent. But I'm trying to teach you not just from the things I've done right, but I'm also trying to teach you looking back at the things that I've done wrong. Don't make the same mistakes that I did. Emphasize the gifts of the Spirit. Emphasize the moving of the Spirit. Teach your children how to move in the miraculous. Well, I don't know how to move in the miraculous. Learn so you can teach your kids. Right? Acts 10.38, how Jesus was telling about Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. You shall receive power if the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Who went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now notice it doesn't say he went around passing tracts to all. I'm not opposed to that. But a passing out a track is not going to get somebody delivered. I'm not saying it can't, but you've got to have some power in you to get somebody delivered. Where does that power come from? the Holy Spirit on your life. Yeah. 
So please don't misunderstand me. I'm not against evangelism, getting people saved. I'm not against passing out tracts. I am. But God desires through Christ, we see that in his life, that we would be able to get people set free and healed and delivered. And that's going to take more than just a track. It's going to take laying hands on the sick. It's going to take casting out demons from people. And you can't do that in your own, but the Spirit of God in you and the Spirit of God upon you equip you to do that. Well, I don't want that. I do. I do. And that's where the church is going. And it's what the Lord wants to do within our midst. Through the work of the Spirit, we are saved and empowered to fulfill the mission that we've been given by the Lord himself. John 3 and 5, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. The Spirit of God in you, Acts 1 and 8. But to the ones that had already received the Spirit, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So to end, to conclude, and really it's not a conclusion, but it's to end up this time where I'm talking and getting myself in trouble. What Ezekiel reveals in our text is God's work of restoration in the people of God. We see and we saw in Ezekiel that God accomplished his work of restoration progressively. And he did, so in, uh, uh, he did so through the power of the Spirit as Ezekiel prophesied the will of God through the word of the Lord. The Spirit of God began to move. I believe that God spoke to me that this coming year is to be a year of restoration. That work will be accomplished by the power of the Spirit. Like Ezekiel did when he was shown God's will for the people's restoration, I also declare what God has revealed to me. I prophesy into this place. I prophesy into the air restoration upon the people of God and upon the house of God. And I believe the result will be a work of the Spirit that is poured out upon the people of God, which is you and I. Let thy Spirit come, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, breathe on me, breathe on us.